3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Hey, you're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855am. This is Priya and here with me is Shahrazad. Good morning, Shahrazad. Good morning, Priya. How are you doing today? Oh, not too bad, not too bad. <laughs> um, um, yeah, so we've got a um, pretty packed show, but I think uh, before um, we start the show, uh, there's been another um, incident of police brutality uh, in South Australia against an Aboriginal man. Uh, Priya, did you want to? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance um, posted about this this morning and we're recording this show on Tuesday. Um, so I'm just reading out a brief summary of the post, which is made by Latoya Rule. So a video emerged late on Monday night of a 28-year-old Aboriginal man being pinned down by multiple South Australian police officers, bashed and locked up in a Port Adelaide police station for allegedly riding a bike without a helmet and lights. Latoya Rule says that charges laid relate only to the event at hand. Witnesses say they were pepper sprayed for screaming for help. They also say they called an ambulance twice. None came and that there were approximately 10 police cars present. Majority of the police had body cameras and some allegedly switched them off. Uh, Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance are seeking media and community support this morning on Tuesday, um, but I'm sure this will be ongoing, to call on Premier and Aboriginal Affairs Minister Stephen Marshall to release this man and charge the relevant South Australian police officers with assault. So you can contact Stephen Marshall and tell him you won't stand for police brutality on 08 8429 3232 or email at Premier at sa.gov.au. Just a reminder that from December 2019 to March 2020, South Australia recorded the highest national increase of daily numbers of people in prisons at 6% or 170 people. South Australia is also the third highest incarcerator of Aboriginal peoples after Northern Territory and Western Australia. Black Lives Matter. So today's show starts off um, with the first episode of Frontier War Stories, which is hosted by Post Beerum. This podcast delves into the first 140 years of conflict and resistance on this continent. In the first episode, Bo speaks with Callum Clayton Dixon, an Ambayang researcher and author of Surviving New England, and a PhD student working on the Anaiwan Dictionary. In this episode, Callum speaks about his book, Surviving New England, a history of Aboriginal resistance and resilience through the first 40 years of the colonial apocalypse. Uh, then we'll be hearing the last segment of the three-part podcast series presented by Deakin University students that participated in last year's Global Journalism Exchange Program to Morocco. So we heard the first two parts uh, two weeks ago, and yes, and last week we had a special edition on um, 
Black Lives Matter and uh, Black Death, the March Against Black Deaths in Custody. So this this will be the last segment. If you want to hear the last two ones, it will be uh, three weeks ago and two weeks ago. Um, and so the idea is to understand how Think Tantra, which is a organization that's working in the north of Morocco, uh, work with different communities to carve out creative space in a rapidly expanding city with high infrastructure changes that bring urban and social challenges. So this this part, or part three, delves into community building and fostering stronger solidarity networks beyond class boundaries. After that, we're going to hear part of a conversation with spoken word artist Dr. Denise Chapman, who shared poems with us on last week's show reflecting on Black Lives Matter in the U.S. or Turtle Island and the murder of George Floyd. Denise is a storyteller who lectures in children's literature, early literacy, and new media and technology at Monash University. She uses poetry, oral stories, children's literature, film, colon response storying, and interactive digital content as windows and spaces for critical activism. Her creative art and research center the experiences of marginalization and oppression to illuminate inequities and push for social change. And so now to Kate Kelly with the news. Good morning, I'm Kate Kelly and here are the top stories on 3CR this Thursday. Two South Australian police officers have been placed on administrative duty and an investigation has been launched after a video was posted to Facebook showing an Aboriginal man being held to the ground and hit several times by officers on Monday night. The incident occurred at about 8pm in the inner North Adelaide suburb of Kilburn. In one of the three short clips, a police officer can be seen holding the head of a 28-year-old man against a concrete ledge and appears to shove his head back down when he tries to move. Onlookers can be heard yelling, let his head up and get off his head. Police alleged he was approached because they had suspicions concerning him being in possession of illicit drugs, they said. But South Australia police later confirmed that there were no drugs were found on the man and no drug-related charges have been laid. And Rio Tinto is in hot water again and has had to repeat its apology to traditional owners for the destruction of a rock shelter that had been occupied for more than 46,000 years. After its iron ore chief executive, Chris Salisbury, reportedly told a staff meeting that the apology was for any distress cause, not an omission the company had done wrong. So according to the Australian Financial Review, which reportedly heard the recording of the Rio Tinto staff meeting held last Wednesday, Wednesday, Salisbury described the events leading up to the detonation of the site, then said, That's why we haven't apologised for the event itself per se, but apologised for the distress the event caused. He also reassured staff the company maintained the backing of political leaders of both sides, despite the Federal Labor Party forming a state inquiry, saying he had engaged with lots and lots of stakeholders, and quietly, there is still some support out there for us. And a little closer to home, Yarra Council will be asked to consult with the Aboriginal community on whether to keep a memorial to Captain James Cook in Edinburgh Gardens, which was defaced on Sunday. So the plaque will be up for debate in an amendment to a motion from Greens councillor Amanda Stone. 
Councillor Stone's three-page motion, which is titled Yarra's, Yarra Response to the Black Lives Matter Movement, will be debated at next week's council meeting. Her motion, written following consultation with advisory group, group Yana Nangara, does not mention the statue, but asks councillors to acknowledge ongoing struggles and commit to action. Mayor Misha Coleman said she had received a lot of feedback from the community as the Black Lives Matter movement gained momentum. And she said, what I'm trying to do is be as respectful and considered as possible and not do anything, anything knee-jerk that's going to cause anyone more damage. And that's all Thursday's headlines. You can see that this country is covered in the blood of Aboriginal people and the length and breadth of it. Australia is a part of an undeclared war and a secret invasion. And it began 250 years ago this year. Now we have a country that's built on lies, deceit, fraud, propaganda and race hatred indoctrination. Now it's been 250 years of us being oppressed in our own land, brutally. We might be oppressed but we understand what freedom is and we fight for it every day and we've resisted this occupation since day one. And I predict colonialism, capitalism, imperialism is going to get knocked out cold by about mid this year. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Now we're going to go into a track, and this one is Energy by Sampa the Great, featuring Nadim Din Gadizi.
fumble. I beg you, listen me. I beg you, open your ears for really waiting at the save. Waiting at the talk. A serious talk at the talk go. No beating on speaking. Listen. In this world we deal, members say, yeah, one day go come when we all go go. Before long, we go meet Mama Godo. When we they meet Mama Godo, tell me, waiting, you go say. Rhythm of life, jam nation. You realize all the time we wasted. You realize all the pain we facing. Please fork up feminine libation. My gosh, we raising. Please sympathize all the lies we raising. Please realize all the times. Female energy, one shot, two shot, three times. Sorry, carry all the weight of the world on your shoulders. Give a couple crowns to the woman who had bore us, told us, focus, love and support us. Magical, umbilical, my universe is radical. Introduce the nation to embracing what is factual. Feminine energy, almost mathematical. You can't really sum up what is infinite and valuable. Feminine energy, balance up the indestructible in the vaginal heaven in thine. She sing a melody to pass the time. Give us her energy so she feel mine. If I was astonished by the level of shame, feminine energy never shame again rain tamed brain praying intuition and ambition running through my veins pour out the love let the healing begin again song there was Energy by Sampa the Great, featuring Nadim Din Gibbizi. Next up, we're going to hear the first episode of Frontier War Stories, hosted by Bo Spiram. Bo Spiram is a Gamilla Ray and Kumar radio host and podcaster who lives in Brisbane. Frontier War Stories, a podcast dedicated to truth-telling about a side of Australia that has been left out of the history books. Each episode, Bo will speak with different Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people about research, books and oral histories, which document the first 140 years of conflict and resistance. In the first episode of Frontier War Stories, Bo speaks with Callum Clayton Dixon, Ambiang researcher, author of Surviving New England and PhD student working on the Anawan Dictionary. In December last year, Callum launched his book called Surviving New England, A History of Aboriginal Resistance and Resilience Through the First 40 Years of the Colonial Apocalypse. Here is part of the conversation, which can be found on Spotify, between Bo Spiram and Callum Clayton Dixon. Hi, Yama. Bo Spiram, Kumar, Kuma, Marawari, 
Uh, before I go on any further, I'd like to acknowledge uh, the traditional owners, and in particular, uh, for these series of discussions, I'd like to honour and pay respects uh, to the Aboriginal men and women who um, made the ultimate sacrifice uh, for us and for many other First Nations people around this continent, which was, um, I guess you could say, putting their front foot uh, forward and, um, you know, laying their bodies on the line, spilling their blood um, in the first uh, 100 and almost 40 years, I guess roughly, um, of the battle that um, raged uh, in this country, um, and that battle being the Frontier Wars. Um, today is, um, I guess, what Australia calls Anzac Day, commemorating um, the sacrifices made by Australian and New Zealand armed forces uh, in the First World War, and I guess any wars that um, Australia and New Zealand participated in. Um, but with this series, what I want to do is chat to First Nations people um, about uh, the wars that Aboriginal people fought and defended um, in their countries uh, in a time when um, our people were considered subhuman and those events you know, we're orchestrated under this notion that, you know, we uh, shouldn't uh, exist and that these people, at any cost, you know, should claim this land. Um, so, without further ado, I would like to introduce uh, my brother, Callum. What's going on, Brass? I'm going on. Um, thanks for coming on and having a yarn. You know, hopefully this is, hopefully this can be um, a series of um, an amazing chats with yourself and the likes of uh, other First Nations people in this country um, and maybe non-First Nations people uh, that have wrote and recorded uh, the history um, of, of our mob um, and the important history of our mob in the lead up, uh, you know, to the, to the, you know, to the 1920s, and which I'm talking about is the Frontier Wars. Um, and in this conversation today, we'll be chatting about Callum's book, um, Surviving New England, A History of the Aboriginal Resistance and Resilience Through the First 40 Years of the Colonial Apocalypse. Um, just before we go any further, tell us your mob and your country, please, brother. Yeah, I'm Beyang. So, I'm Beyang is the southernmost tribe of the New England Tablelands uh, in northern New South Wales. Um, uh, part of what many people know as the Anawan Language Group, or the Anawan Nation. Um, so, my family and my people come from around Walker, Ingobar, Woolbrook. Uh, down at the southern end of the New England Tablelands. Uh, my family names are Dixon or Schmutter. Uh, I'm connected to the Morris Quinns as well. Mm, awesome, definitely. And I think, you know, it being Anzac Day today, I might ask you a few questions a little bit later on uh, down the track about, you know, um, Anzacs um, and the sacrifice um, Aboriginal people made um, in the walls. Um, and then I guess what, um, they received uh, on coming back because me knowing you, um, per- that's sort of personal to you as well. Um, so I'd love to get um, you know, your story on that as well. But I guess just to kick off, um, the the title of this book is very strong, um, Surviving New England, but then also like the subtitle underneath that. Um, could you tell us a bit about how you come up with that title? Um, so the book was originally... The book's based on my master's thesis, um, and when I was trying to come up with a title for it, it was something re- really long and convoluted, something like Surviving and Resisting New England, um, a history of blah, 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 blah. Um, so I needed to shorten it, so I thought 
um, Surviving New England encapsulated the story that I wanted to tell. Um, it's both about uh, our people's fierce resistance against the uh, colonisation of our lands and lives here on the southern half of the New England tableland, um, but also about the conditions uh, and circumstances through which our people were forced to survive um, and managed to survive against all odds. Mm. So, yeah, that's, I guess, the... And in terms of the colonial apocalypse, um, part of the, the subtitle, um, what our people survived through and continue to survive through uh, is... Is um, can definitely be described as an apocalypse. Like when you look through, when you look through what our people went through back in those first few decades of uh, colonisation, so 1830s through the 1860s, it was absolutely apocalyptic. What happened to the people themselves? What happened to the country? Um, like it was just such a, a massive um, change and very very tumultuous time for our people. Definitely, definitely was. Um, <clears throat> you know, because when you look at it, uh, the title and the subtitle really stand out. Uh, very, very strong, um, you know, like the way that you worded that and, and that you put that in as well. And something interesting that you just mentioned um, as well was, um, you know, that whole surviving part. You know, one was resistance and the resilience side, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, I guess the reaction to, you know, new people, uh, alien people, you could say as well, coming in and sort of, you know, using this, um, I guess back then you well, could have said like this sort of alien way of farming and destroying the land and how they treated each other. Um, you know, very, very, very interesting um, uh, uh, title and subtitle. Um, so I guess, yeah, tell us a bit about the book, like you just did just then in terms of, um, you know, the the title yeah, just tell us some more about the book in, um, without, I guess, giving it away, because I know, and at the end of this year, we'll let you sort of plug it and where people can uh, get it as well. Um, sure. you know, yeah, so you can plug that. But, yeah, I guess just briefly, just tell us a bit about the book. So the way it came about was I never intended to to write about this kind of history. Uh, my intention was to uh, work on the reclamation of our traditional language from the archives. And all I wanted to do for my research was just spend a couple of thousand words uh, just briefly describing and explaining how our language here up on the, the table and, um, ended up in the state that it's in, i.e. that it's been dormant for something like 70, 80 years and stuff in the 1940s. Um, and so what I started doing was looking through uh, the uh, histories that have been written about the region, both specifically about the Aboriginal experience up here um, and just broader histories about the the cloning process. And what I found was that our people's story was almost always just a footnote. Um, it was either the chap chapter one in some uh, pastoral history of a particular part of the area, um, chapter one in a, in a, in a book about a, um, a particular station, um, and our people were only just uh, a very, very small, uh, I guess got a very small mention uh, in in the histories that have been written about the area and our people. Um, so what that motivated me to do is continue digging and digging, and eventually I decided, well, I think there's a there's a need here to look deeper, to dig deeper, um, dig around in the archives as much as possible, leave no stone unturned, and try and put back together the most 
comprehensive picture possible from the archives, that is, of our people's experience of resistance uh, and resilience through that early colonial period. Because a, a lot more is known and spoken about in terms of like the protection era and the, the welfare, the, the era of the welfare board, um, than is known about and spoken about that early period because it's much more fragmented um, and it's longer ago. Uh, people, like, there's less of that kind of memory, um, less of that kind of history and story retained within both, like, I guess, our own community and the broader community, like, like uh, the, the history that um, non-Aboriginal people remember from um, that time there or that has been passed down is much less than what's been passed down from, say, the late 1800s or the early 1900s. And I guess it's the same, um, the same for us in terms of, um, like, uh, I guess how that um, story has become clouded over time, and it hasn't been clouded um, unintentionally. Um, there's been this conspiracy of silence and a lot of denial by um, by the coloniser and by the education system uh, in terms of. Um, whitewashing and downplaying the kinds of violence that took place um, in order for the colonial project to proceed. Um, so I guess the book is the book is aimed at uh, uncovering some of that history by exploiting the colonizers' own archival materials um, and to tell that story about people's fierce resistance against all odds. Um, and yeah, to really highlight how people's um, story of survival against against overwhelming odds. So just to flip the narrative of how you know um, history is told in in the New England area, just flipping the history, that paternalistic sort of um, noble savage, whatever you know, um, got conquered, all that stuff. Um, I, are you sort of happy that you sort of drifted away from what you initially were doing in terms of you know, the rec- reclamation of your language, which I know you're still continuing uh, to do as well, but in terms of halting that project to get onto this year one, um, you know, uh, were you sort of trying to push away away from that and sort of stick to the language stuff, or was it always something sort of easy to just to go to and just go down? And obviously there's an easy because of the research, and I'm sure some of the the archival stuff that you came through would have been, you know, if not somewhat traumatising and um, yeah. what you're reading about as well. But are you sort of happy with the fact that um, you put this out knowing that you sort of um, shifted off the path in terms of the language revival stuff? Just, just before I um, go on to that, I uh, just wanted to mention one more thing in relation to, um, like, the, the way in which history has been uh, told uh, about this area and about our people. Uh, often uh, the colonisers' uh, accounts of our people or even like more contemporary histories that have been written about our people in this region often try and focus on, oh, look at look at the really positive relationships that existed between um, uh, pastoralists and squatters on this particular station here and the local Aboriginal people, ignoring the fact that that pastoral station in order for that to exist and to have been set up, Aboriginal people mm. have to have been dispossessed and often violent. So I think uh, what a lot of non-Aboriginal historians end up doing is trying to, or just people who are writing local histories, 
uh, is highlight these supposedly positive experiences that have, and positive relationships that have arisen between Aboriginal people and the invaders, um, without examining the core uh, the core issues underlying those supposedly positive relationships. Mm. Um, or, or even on that as well, um, you know, they focus sort of on you know, the history of massacres or they focus on the history of, you know, these policies as well, where, you know, it sort of comes from like a paternalistic uh, point of view and how it's looking at history. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, this is the, the history they're focusing on. So this is the history when, you know, Joe Blow, you know, picks the book up and say, oh, I've never heard this part about history of Aboriginal people. This must be the only thing that ever happened and ever, you know, that they ever did as well. Um, you know, yeah, when there's often a lot of focus like, as you said, on, like, massacres and what the colonizer did to our people. Yeah. Um, and that's really, like, that that's half the picture. And that's a really important part of the picture. Definitely. But the other half of the picture is what did our people do in response? Like, highlight the resistance. Like, there's all this massacre mapping, um, which is really important. However, I think it's equally as important to map our resistance. Definitely. And I definitely. think perhaps there's, a, perhaps there's an uncomfortability or uncomfortableness um, uh, of um, some 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 non-Aboriginal historians might feel some kind of uncomfortableness about uh, mapping the resistance. There might be some kind of uh, some something else going on there, maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But in terms in terms of like um, uh, diverging from that original uh, language project, which I've now come back come back to. Um, I guess this historical research about our people's experience during that early period has helped explain um, to a large extent like what, like how our language ended up in the state that it's in. Because people will often ask, like, well, why, why is our language so much worse off than those on the coast or out west? And it's not just because, it's not, it's not because our people cherished our language any less. Um, than other people did. It's because of the, the unique experience that our people had up here of mm. colonisation. You had um, more sheep and more, more more livestock overall flooding into the New England region than anywhere around us, than the Liverpool Plains and the Guaida River region, than the Clarence River District and the Clay River District. Um, the only other district that neighbours the New England region that came close to the blood of livestock and colonists into the region was the Darling Downs. And mm. I think, as, as far as I understand, um, the Darling Downs Aboriginal languages have ended up in a similar state to our own. Mm. So you can link language loss or language decline to livestock, the, the amount of livestock that flooded into a region. And how that works is that... Um, once you get hundreds of thousands and eventually millions of sheep and cattle into a region that start depleting all the native food resources, black holes have got a number of choices to make or a number of options. Either go and become refugees in the rough country and eventually get hunted out by the native police, um, starve to death, continue fighting uh, a guerrilla guerrilla war and get killed, or assimilate and um and go on to stations, come up to stations, um, uh, become become past, part of the pastoral economy, or on the outskirts of it at least, um, work for rations, 
and that's how that's how a lot of people ended up surviving. And so if, if, if more of our people ended up on stations more quickly and in, in closer proximity to white people than anywhere around us and had to spend all that time with white people all the time, mm. um, then our people were forced to speak English a lot quicker than others were. Mm. So the, the story of language loss goes way back because there's, there's very few colonists in the area that bothered to learn the local language. So if you're forced to go and work on a station where they won't work, won't learn your language and you've got to learn English, then that, that's where, that's where language, the story of language decline kind of begins way back there, long before the protection board and the welfare board and the, and the banning of languages through, mm-hmm. through laws and like those kinds of policies that happened way back then. Like the, the, the beginnings of that started like mm-hmm. back in the 1830s as soon as uh, livestock came uh, up onto the table and Squatters and that. Um, just before we get into talking about sort of, um, I guess, the relationship and the resistance um, and how fast it kicked off, when did, well, I guess, what was sort of life like? Uh, could, could you sort of describe us, uh, describe to us about um, how the mob were pre-colonisation in terms of how many clans or you know um, what, 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 what it was like before? And did you just hear sort of? Uh, messages, you know, from other nations saying, well, you know, these white followers are coming up. All right. So, um, prior to colonisation, uh, you had um, five different tribal groups that make up um, what we now know as the Anuan language community or language language group. Um, those were Umbeyang, Yanuan, Inuan, Rathun, and Anirwan. Um, and the entire Aboriginal population of the Tableland before, based, based on analysis of what is very, I guess, very limited um, historical records and data, um, would have been something around twelve to 1,300 people across the entire Tableland. So for them five groups, you might have had about five, five to 600 uh, Anuan people to begin with. And so within... within uh, Something like within a decade, there was more. There was just as there was either more or just as many white people up here on the tableland as there was Aboriginal people within mm. just a decade. Or Anuan. And then, precisely. Oh, not on the entire tableland. Oh, okay, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and so, you, so by the end of that eighteen by eighteen thirty nine, there was something like uh, four hundred fifty, something like four hundred fifty male colonists up here. All, almost all of them with access to guns and ammunition and other weapons. And so you've got, four, let's say, 450 um, male colonists with um, firearms and you look at the number of, um, like, fight, so-called fighting men, that's how they referred to, um, referred to our warriors in, like, the commissioner's reports and that. The number of fighting men had already been Walked up here on the tableland by the within within what's that, seven or eight years hmm. by the number of um, um, colonists up here. So it's just a massive, absolute massive um, outpopulation and like flooding of the region with um, livestock and colonists. So, so, not, not, so 1839 is when they first came and landed. 1830, 1832 was when the first hmm. squatter arrived around the Walker district. Colin Semple, um, and he took up Walker Station, and within seven years there was 
something like 450 colonists up here. Mm. And within within something like that, within about 30 years, for every one Aboriginal person, there was about 16 white people mm. in 30 years. Mm. When did it all start and kick off in terms of uh, the resistance um, and the resilience against uh squatters, uh, colonial forces, uh, police or whoever, you know, w- w- did that kick off immediately or was it some time after? Um, the earliest, I guess the, like Hamilton Collins Semple gave evidence to the New South Wales Legislative Council um, about his experience on the frontier and he talked about um, upon, upon, uh, encountering Aboriginal people for the first time, he said they were always hostile, always hostile. And but after a while, after the after the people had become acquainted with the power of white people, i.e. guns, um, that that hostility went away. That, that's what essentially what he said. So mm. after, after that demonstration of raw power, after that um, demonstration that demonstration of violence. Um, yeah, so he said, yeah, there was hostility from the get-go, but the earliest reports uh, of frontier conflict were in the mid-1830s, and they started to appear in the um, in the Sydney newspapers about shepherds being speared, cattle and sheep being taken, and then once you get to about 1830, once, once you get to 1838, um, so that's the, the around the same time as the Mark Creek Massacre, mm-hmm. um, you get the first, you had, you had a few um, uh, labourers on stations, uh, so I think it was Yarrowitch down the southeastern corner of the Tableland, and I think it was on the Mahai Creek run that a number of shepherds were killed and had their sheep taken, mm-hmm. uh, and then a uh, lieutenant by the name of George Cobbin took a detachment of the Mount of Police up on the Tableland and pursued the alleged murderers of these shepherds. Um, and that was the first official uh, expedition, police police action, uh, on the table in 1838. It was only a couple of couple of months before the Mile Creek Massacre, and mm. they, ended up, they ended up being a, a battle over near Surveyors Creek, um, and one Aboriginal man ended up with his head chopped off and put on a stake. Um, yeah, mm. so that, that, that's the kind of violence that's um, that's taken place up here. Mm-hmm. Just in that as well, um, you know, you were talking, uh, like you just mentioned, you know, one of the first sort of interactions that kicked it off was like the killing of sheep or, or, or cattle, you know, and also the, 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 the herder or whatever you want to call him. Um, like um, that part there, I reckon, you know, is important to sort of chop up as well because, you know, they're not just marching cattle or sheep or whatever, you know, through a barren land or through or through grassy green for them to get a feed. They're essentially sort of going on to somebody's, you know, could you sort of break that down in terms of how that, you know, I guess essentially, essentially that pissed off, you know, black foals or, or sort of like broke, you know, I guess the protocols of the mob, you know, like, you know, the taking sure. of cattle and what it did, you know, in terms of going through a destroyed country. Yeah. So when it comes to accounts of frontier conflict at that time, um, so the newspaper reports, squatters' diaries, um, commissioners' reports, um, they make very little reference to what they thought were the motivations of Aboriginal resistance activities. So they talked about 
the killing of sheep and shepherds and um, and cattle and uh, and all that in a way. So they described them as like random random acts of violence. They had no there was there was no purpose to them. It was just um, violent violent Aborigines killing killing shepherds and um, taking off the sheep. Um, but what you find later on, so move forward to like the 1880s and into the early 1900s, you get people who lived in the region reflecting on uh, the conflict that took place and calling it warfare mm. and saying that Aboriginal people were responding to invasion of our lands. Mm-hmm. So you've got, you've got those, those uh, local settlers who've lived in the region acknowledging the that it was um, it was a, a state of war, but then back then when it was happening, mm. they were just random acts, and then move forward to the time of the history wars or just more recent times in general, and you've got people denying that there was there was war. Yet go back a hundred years, and you've got white people, historic historians, and settlers, very frankly acknowledging it as war, mm. um, and talking about these acts of resistance as responses to trespass, like they talked about the white trespasses on the lands of, on our lands, um, and other, other things, other motivating factors in the resistance were things like um, the widespread abuse of Aboriginal women by uh, white colonists, um, so often, often attacks on settlers were um, taken in revenge for that okay. kind of thing. Yeah. And you had, um, like, there was one story about a couple of thousand sheep being, being taken from a station called Salisbury, which is around um, the Urala area, mm-hmm. southeast of Armdale. And of those 2,000 sheep that were taken, several hundred of them were found just laying around dead with their kidneys taken out. And I had to do a bit of digging and research into that. Um, and there's all these accounts of, um, livestock and shepherds and um, and that having their kidneys taken out by uh, Aboriginal people in different parts of the country, all, all up the east coast, I think. Um, and so I kept digging a bit more, and then there was all these accounts of like traditional practices to do with um, um, like the use of kidney fat and the cultural significance and spiritual significance of it. Mm. Um, so there's this element of kind of like spiritual warfare. Um, in there as well, where where mob would like put the kidney bats on the tips of spears and things like that, um, and it was essentially a I think yeah it was yeah essentially I guess an act of um, spiritual spiritual warfare. So there's all these two kind of different elements to it, um, and like like you said, there was all this damage being done to country, and mm. if country is what sustained our people, um, resistance was a necessity in order to um, in order to sustain, um, to continue sustaining our people. Mm. Because if, and I guess, I guess what happened, uh, along the way was our people tried to adapt. So if the native food resources were being depleted, so all the vegetation being absolutely smashed by these livestock, um, shepherds going around tearing down all and destroying all the, the big nets that we had hanging up, um, and all the kangaroos and, and other and other animals and that being driven driven off into the rough country. 
uh, our people started hunting and killing uh, and eating livestock. So there's all these accounts of um, shepherds and whoever else coming across an Aboriginal camp on the edge of the gorge, say, um, and black holes are made um, like our own fold, our own um, pen, or the shipping, and are shepherding them and eating them. So this kind of adaptation, trying to trying to um, survive. Uh, yeah, trying to survive and trying to go from like native food resources that have been completed to this new food resource. But that adaptation became very short-lived because what happens when you take the colonizers livestock is colonizers come after you with guns. Mm-hmm. So, so that, yeah, there was those attempts at adaptation, but they were uh, ultimately futile because of, um, because of the violence that was meted out in response to the taking of those livestock. Just then we heard part of the first episode of Frontier War Stories, hosted by Bo Spearham, who was in conversation with Callum Clayton Dixon, who spoke about a book that he launched last year, Surviving New England, A History of Aboriginal Resistance and Resilience Through the First 40 Years of the Colonial Apocalypse. And you can check out the whole Frontier War Stories series on Spotify. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. 3CR Thursday Breakfast stands in solidarity with the uprising in Turtle Island. Black Lives Matter. To support First Nations families here, please donate to David Dongo's family at the Justice for Junior Black Lives Matter GoFundMe page. Donate to Kumanjai Walker's family for their fight for justice. The GoFundMe page is Justice for Yundamu. Inquiry on police shooting. Please support the family of Joyce Clark and donate to In Memory of Joyce Clark Hashtag justice for Joyce. And support the Sisters Inside Free Her campaign to pay off fines for Aboriginal women in prison. No justice, no peace, no prisons, no police. Alright, so now let's head into another new track. I'm just so thrilled that so many artists are putting out new music, even during this pandemic. Um, this one is by TK Meidster, Shook. These hands, yeah, I got a all shook. Earthquake, yeah, I got a all shook. I came out of play by the book. Yeah, I make the bands, yeah, I got a all shook. These men's looking at me all shook. Talk about it, but they're never gonna do it. I came out of play by the book. Yeah, I make the bands, yeah, I got a all shook. These bitches get sick, I know how you're metric Then these frogs tryna fit in, got them playing Tetris I go by the name, written on my necklace Never been about it, games unless you want a death wish First come, first serve basis Too uplift to a racist I've been a G, niggas tryna get in my fraction Like Jackson, put it into bed with a napkin Platinum flex, coming dreams like a Malcolm Big ass rims, going forward in a Falcon Came into the biz, said I wouldn't boy damn Then I made a city pop, now I am the study quiz These mans, yeah, I got them all shook yeah, I got them all shook I came out of play by the book Yeah, I make the bands Yeah, I got them all shook These men looking at me all shook Talk about it, but they're never gonna do it I came out of play by the book Yeah, I make the bands Yeah, I got them all shook Got the jet flock, fitters looking pish posh I be in my bag, I don't dance around TikTok Gold on my wings like a 
like I'm Huckleberry Finn. Bone like a bubble popping all up in the wind. Blow paraffin, holes like I'm Ferg. House in the burbs, I tip the bird, I tip the words. Snug with the guns, Peter Papa question couldn't get me on a run like. Part of me don't really care. Part of those in my DMs, I be looking in my ear. Intuition with a vision, see my future really clear. I'm strapped in a sea, boom, boom, and I'm there. I swerve. I'm this is why they even got nerve. Outside, they be looking like squirrel. No time for a hater, I squirrel. King, if you got, I'm pulling my nerve. TK Meister's new song, Shook. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast on 855am. Today we're joined again by Shannon and Ebony, uh, who's, who've been coming on the past few weeks to present their three-part series produced on last year's Global Journalism Exchange in-country program to Morocco. So uh, just another recap for listeners. Can you tell us a little bit about yourselves and what Global Journalism Exchange is? Hi, I'm Ebony Dyke. And I'm Shannon Tucker. So Global Journalism Exchange is a not-for-profit organisation working to improve cross-cultural understanding by fostering better informed journalism. Last year, the program took us and three other students from Deakin University to Morocco. Great, and thanks so much for joining us. So while you were in country and you produced a podcast series, can you tell us a little bit about that? In this podcast, we will explore Tangier, a rapidly expanding city in northern Morocco, through the lens of Think Tonja, a non-for-profit organisation. Founded in 2016, Think Tonja is a cultural platform that highlights the urban challenges arising in the city of Tangier, a region that has experienced rapid growth in a very short period of time. The organisation seeks to address the social and spatial impacts of urbanisation by bringing together everyday citizens and members of the creative community, such as architects, artists, urban planners and researchers. So today we're going to look into collaboration and community work. Can you tell us a little bit more about this episode? In the last episode, Amina and Yusuf shared the significance of creative spaces in a city undergoing rapid urban development. They highlighted the central role that art plays in tackling the impacts of urban matters and gave us insight into the work that their organisation is doing to encourage artistic experimentation across different communities. Coming up, Mariana Alapidis talks with Amina and Yusuf about the collaborative and community work that is at the centre of Think Tanja. I'm joined by Think Tanja's uh, Amina Murid, uh, who's the project manager and communications manager, Yusuf El-Idrisi. Previously, we spoke about the role of urbanisation in the region and bringing back the creative space for artistic expression um, in, in Tanja. Um, Today I'd like to talk about the collaborative and community work um, that we that Think Tanja participates in. So, if we take a step back, what is the what makes up the identity 
of Tanja. Who 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 is Tanja? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean I think it's really difficult to answer your question. I mean to say who he is, what is Tanja? To be honest, I think a city. I mean first I don't like to talk about identity when it's come to the city. It's, I think it's a tricky, uh, you know, um, subject, let's say. But with Tangier, I mean, as I explained to you, uh, the last 20 years, and maybe it started a little bit before, but um, the population of Tangier changed a lot. And today, um, I think a large part of the, of, of the population come from Morocco, but not from Tangier. First, they come from the north region with the rural exodus, but also um, because of the expansion of the city and the development, uh, there, there is a lot of job opportunities in Tangier. So people from Tangier, uh, from Casablanca, from Rabat, and from all over Morocco, they came here. I think there is also a part of the population who comes from abroad, foreigners. First, you have the European foreigners. So Tangier used to be an international city. So uh, during, I don't remember specifically the date, but, and we still have this strong identity, I mean, international identity. The Spanish culture is really strong in Tangier, and you have a lot of family, who, I mean, were, which are like Moroccan and Spanish uh, identities. So the uh, Spanish identities is really strong here. The French one too, and a little bit English and American. Also, you have different kind of diasporas, let's say. And today also, and, uh, the African, let's say, um, not African, this is not correct to say like that, but people from the south of Morocco, so sub-Saharan African, uh, they are also part of the Moroccan society and community. So I think I just want to give you an overview of the different uh, communities you can think in Tangier, but uh, I think Tangier was always a city uh, in development and in mutation when it's come to the identity because of its localization and uh, geographically speaking, but also the strategic points was a city made by these different uh, flux and different um, uh, migration and also war and conquest, 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 you said in English? So yeah, uh, and, I, and I hope and I'm sure and I believe like the identity of the city will continue to change. So yeah, this is Tanger. I just want to add something actually like uh, Tangier is not homogeneous. Like we cannot say like what what is Tangier, who is Tangier, because like we expect a definitive answer. Like this is what is Tangier, who is Tangier. So there are multiple communities, as Amina said, and um, I think like specifically Tangier, specifically Tangier, like in comparison with maybe different uh, cities in Morocco, like it is open to to Europe, and there is uh, like. Uh, a lot of uh, sub-Saharan uh, communities and also like people coming from different uh, sides of, uh, of Morocco also who are, living, uh, who are living here or there. So the, the, who is Tangier, it's all, all its people because it's in the process of changing. Like in the tour, like we realize that it's in, it is fast changing city, like in 
urban and social and you know, economical. So what is Tangier, I think it's it's process, like it's uh, an ongoing change. Constantly, yeah. yeah. And so if, if we look at that and, and the projects that Think Tangier does, how do you ensure that all these constants, because if the fabric is constantly changing, how do you make sure that all these different types of people and the diversity of Tanja is included in your projects? We don't make it sure, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> we want it, yeah. for sure. We want to have the, not the biggest, but uh, the more uh, open, inclusive, inclusive project, for sure. But we can make it, uh, to be honest. And we are not running after the audiences, to be honest. So when we have a talk here or a public event, if you have 20 people, we are super happy. The idea is more what kind of seeds we are, are we planting now, let's say, and what kind of opportunities are we creating for, this, for those different communities. It's more about that. And also, how can we uh, continue to try to understand what's happening in the city, connected with different organizations, with different partners, and also to stay open, to be honest, like to, 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 to the city. How can we be... So our vision for the future, uh, the vision of Inktanger for the future is like to be really um, a cultural center open to the city a space where people, where those different communities, they can come and feel what they need, let's say, and create new projects, cultural projects. So this is what we wanted uh, to, to, to do. And so why, when we look at the community coming together, yeah. why is it important that they come together to create the art? Yeah. Why is it important? So the idea is not, for example, to mix all this community or to uh, met them, the, to let them meeting because I think it's happening outside without us, to be honest. The life is happening. What we wanted is more to uh, create some bridge between different communities who never meet. For example, the artistic community and some specific neighborhood community. They can meet, for example, but it is not obvious. So our mission is to create platform or space where they can meet, but more than meet, where they can co-create together projects. So it's come to the methodology. What kind of methodology you apply for your project? You, you know what I mean? And it's take us time to develop our own methodology, to be honest, to find the correct way, because it's not something so uh, obvious to say you just... Uh, invite an artist and put it in this neighborhood and let him work. It's not happening like that. And all it's all if it's happened, you don't have a long-term um, impact, let's say. And we realize, like, uh, all the different communities, like the researcher, the architecture, let's say, academic communities, the artistic communities, the... the Neighborhood community, all these communities have their own stereotype, their own border, their own way to see the world and to think and to intervene. And it's tech uh, really, uh, I mean, you have to do work on you first. Because, and you have to come back, uh, to step back, to come back to you, the, the, the common thing you ha we have all together, which is humanity, to be honest. It's 
can sound a little bit utopic, <laughs> but what we experiment really uh, doing that is like, yeah, we have to come back just as the essence of what we are, which is humanity. And as a human, we, just, we all have a, a creative potential, for sure. And no matter if you are a researcher, art, artist, if you are like a nurse, we all have this creative potential. And what we're trying to do is to encourage the expression of this creative uh, potential through different activities. So, yeah, I think I don't know if, if yeah, I no. And question, so when, when you talk about these neighborhood communities that we sort of think Tanja enters and helps, you know, bring these creative spaces in. And um, what's the sort of feedback that you've been getting back from the neighbourhood communities? You know, have, has it been positive? Has it been neutral? Has it been negative? What, yeah. what have they felt? Yeah. Um, so it depends on what kind of... In, in this specific neighbourhood, Zutina, we work with them for like two years and a half now. So it's really a partnership. So, so we don't help, it, help them. And this is something we really wanted to, to, to point, we don't use the term like helping or, you know, we co-create with them. They are a partner on the process. And we learn that from them. So the feedback we had, um, more than feedback, let's say the creation of uh, the partnership was more how can we, uh, how, can, how can we learn together more? Because we have something to share with them and to learn from them. And, and, and I mean, it's the same in the both sense. So the main uh, knowledge, let's say, uh, we, 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 we had, like, okay, we have, we have so much to learn from those different communities. And we also have to change the way we are speaking about this, about it. I mean, speaking about those communities or speaking about artistic or creative community, we have to create also a new vocabulary, a new way to talk about this, those projects, because most of the time, and this is, yeah, we will talk, we will need, we will help this community to have access to artistic, blah, blah, blah. and so you put them directly on one box, and you put you on a box. And so where well, one of the feedback was really to realize how we need to change the way, how philosophy, let's say, our vocabulary, our statement from the beginning, and um, and the community. To be honest, um, it was not so easy to uh, enter. I mean, to be part of, of the community because we realized also the main um, I say the the main challenge was trust, was to develop trust. And I think now, after two years and a half, we <laughs> we have this trust, all of us. But yeah, I think you can't develop any kind of project, long-term project, without this um, without this trust, and without being open-minded and always, you know, step back and uh, question your work and and, just, and listen what your different partners want to say. But now they are really happy because they felt really uh, part of Think Tanger community, but also they feel like uh, they learn a lot from all these different uh, meetings we had, and they feel more like uh, um, autonomous in, the in, in their creativity. It's so nice to be able to 
create a space where people feel like they're equal and like you said not put in boxes because it seems to be even though people may come in with good intentions at times it seems like you know you can be quite patronizing at moments you know and so if we take a step back out of you know the smaller communities here how how does involving external organizations and communities benefit the the conversation in the movement because you know you, you've done projects with Jordan and Italy and you know even Switzerland how how does that contribute to this um wider uh project yeah so let's say uh we we really i mean from the beginning we really tried to develop a partnership strategy which is uh linked to her, our ethic and philosophy. So today we have plenty of proposition of developing some partnership and collaboration all around the world. But every time we ask ourselves, okay, it is uh, correct, or, or it is, um, let's not, not correct, it is relevant. And it is also uh, um, coherent. coherent, absolutely, to what we are developing. But also, how can we learn from those, for example, as you said, we collaborate with this organization, Italia, but also with different organizations in Lebanon, in France, and in Netherlands. And every time, we just like, how can we uh, extend practice, knowledge, experience, and tools and how can we uh, also, when we come back to Tanja, how can we share it with our local community? And this is why also we, we wanted to develop, for example, the podcast session, because we realized we met so many different uh, interesting people all around the world. And every time we have meetings and discussions with them, and we have no way to, after the meeting, to share, you know, with a larger community. Uh, what we learn from those people. So for us, like, yeah, podcast is a way to to try to keep it, you know, uh, not keep it, but to, to archive it and to let it somewhere on the on the web. Um, uh, and the website also would be one of those platforms really uh, important. But I want to, just wanted to... To add something, when it comes to the collaboration, for example, last month we invited uh, an organization from Egypt, from Cairo, and this organization has a huge experience uh, about exploring city mutation and urbanization, like in the city of Cairo, which is, I think, the best example <laughs> of bad urban planning, but maybe some good practices. And the idea was also to create a, a, a public workshop. So we open it to the public to let some students and um, youth, young practitioners to be also take advantage of the meeting with this uh, uh, Egyptian collective. So yeah, we just try to be a hub, to be honest here. Not just try, but we try to also to be a hub I mean, a platform like how, okay, we take advantage of all these different meetings we have all around the world, but also how can we bring them to Tanja and connect with different organizations and let's um, the local community be part of this more global uh, uh, movement of thinking urban development differently. Saying that th think Tanja has become this uh, hub of knowledge and fostering creative space for everyone to be immersed and be a part of it. It's really a fantastic 
project um, going forward. I'd like to thank you both so much for your time thank and for you. being so generous. Perfect. Thank you. That was Mariana, Amina and Yusuf discussing collaborative and community work. If you would like to find out more about Think Tonja, you can follow them on social media at Think Tonja or visit their website think-tonja.com. That's T-A-N-G-E-R. Thank you so much, Anna and Ebony, for joining us over the past few weeks. So they were just wrapping up their last interview by Mariana Alapidis, and all three participated in the Global Journalism Exchange 2019 program to, to Morocco. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. 3CR is your station in solidarity and struggle. We've been with you since 1976 and we are here to stay. Throughout June, we're running a station appeal. We need the financial support of our listeners to stay independent, community-owned and radical. Jump online and give what you can. Go to 3cr.org.au. Three CR Thursday Breakfast stands in solidarity with the uprising in Turtle Island. Black Lives Matter. To support First Nations families here, please donate to David Dongo's family at the Justice for Junior Black Lives Matter GoFundMe page. Donate to Kumanjai Walker's family for their fight for justice. The GoFundMe page is Justice for Yundamu. Inquiry on police shooting. Please support the family of Joyce Clark and donate to In Memory of Joyce Clark. Hashtag justice for Joyce. And support the Sisters Inside Free Her campaign to pay off fines for Aboriginal women in prison. No justice, no peace, no prisons, no police. Now I think it's time to head into a track. So this one is a new one by Jess B. Ponnet. Yeah. Uh-uh. Jess B. You wanna rap on it, rap on it You wanna come and go just like the top on it You wanna hit me on my phone and come and slap on it You wanna take me to heaven like I die on it You wanna rap on it, rap on it You wanna come and go just like the top on it You wanna hit me on my phone and come and slap on it You wanna take me to heaven like I die on it I guess the field's flowing open for the right moment Swerving left, right, driving like the whip stolen I'm a poet, got you sipping on my love potion Follow my lead, baby, like it's hypnosis What's your motive, what's your name, what's your sign? Time is of the essence, tick-tock, the design Hands trying to be in your rotation every night It's that midnight hour, we gon' shine Bring it to the front, girls wanna have fun Every man try, go one by one Even by bite, no bread, not a crumb Gotta make a bank run, wanna have fun What you bring it to the table? Table, baby, what you offer? What moves are you making? Yeah, we trying to prosper. I'm in a big brains, big game, big talk. If it ain't eight one, don't bother. You wanna rap on it, rap on it. You wanna come and go just like the top on it. You wanna hit me on my phone and come and slap on it. You wanna take me to heaven like I die on it. You wanna rap on it, rap on it. You wanna come and go just like the top on it. You wanna hit me on my phone and come and slap on it. You wanna take me to heaven like I die on it. If we in the 
coalition, best be politicking. Uh-huh. Put your hands up to the ceiling if you're feeling the feeling with all this wheeling and dealing and all the hype to be reaching. There's not another like me, and that's one in a billion. Uh-uh. I see your baby, yeah, freakily. I do it real good, real easily. Practice makes a person that the people seek. And how you treating you is how you treating me. And if it ain't what I want, I'ma jump back from it. I'm too I and too iconic. I don't judge, I just am honest. I don't want that, want love and profit. If I get down, I'ma get down real. Bust down on you, I'ma close that deal. Only speak big facts, but my game unreal. Hop queen, hop monster, where does she kill? He's on the vibe pony, vibe pony. You wanna come and go just like the top on it. You wanna hit me on my phone and come and slap on it. You wanna take me to heaven like a dive on it. You wanna vibe on it, vibe on it. You wanna come and go just like the top on it. You wanna hit me on my phone and come and slap on it. You wanna take me to heaven like a dive on it. You wanna vibe on it, vibe on it. You wanna vibe on it, vibe on it. You wanna vibe on it, vibe on it. Come and go just like the top on it. And just then, we heard Jess B's new song, Ponnet. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. G'day, you mob. Kutcher Edwards here. I just want to send out a message to you all. To stop the spread of COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus, it is advised that you keep 1.5 metres away from each other. Follow rules on social gatherings. Wash your hands when appropriate and stay home if you're feeling sick or unwell. But most of all, keep strong, stay safe and of course, keep listening to 3CR community radio to keep connected to the community we'll get through this and hope to see you real soon bye you can see that this country is covered in the blood of Aboriginal people the length and breadth of it Australia is a part of an undeclared war and a secret invasion and it began 250 years ago this year now we have a country that's built on lies deceit, fraud propaganda and race hatred indoctrination. Now it's been 250 years of us being oppressed in our own land, brutally. We might be oppressed but we understand what freedom is and we fight for it every day and we've resisted this occupation since day one. And I predict colonialism, capitalism, imperialism is going to get knocked out cold by about mid this year. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 855am. Up next, we hear part of a conversation with spoken word artist Dr. Denise Chapman, who shared poems with us last week reflecting on Black Lives Matter in the US or Turtle Island and the murder of George Floyd. Now, we couldn't play this conversation last week, uh, so here's just part of it that we'll play. Joining us now is Dr. Denise Chapman, who is a storyteller, digital media creator and spoken word artist who lectures in children's literature, early literacy and new media technology at Monash University. Um, so firstly, welcome, Denise. Thank you for joining us. 
Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Really good to be here. So George Floyd died very recently. Um, he was killed by police choking him. Um, and I guess that's the context, right? That's what that's. So I suppose, did you want to reflect a bit on what's happening in the US? Mm. Well, you know, thanks for asking. I, I think that, uh, it's very, um, as a, you know, as a person, um, who's African American or Black American living in Australia, it's a rare moment for me to be able to say, oh, you know, I've experienced this. I know. And to, to pe- for people to actually sit down and go talk about it. Because ordinarily there's, it's, um, my intersections are ones that are complicated. Being a black woman, you know, look, the Black Lives Matter movement might have started in 2013. However, this has been going on for decades, hundreds of years. We have been saying that we matter. We've been fighting for our humanity. And so it, it, it's, it's not something that's new. And I think that that's the first thing that I want to make cer- certain that I get across that this is not new. Um, it just so happens that now what is new, um, is the filming of these moments. Okay. But not even that wasn't new. Okay. Because it was back in, um, the Jim Crow era. Uh, in the uh, late 1800s, you had from, you know, uh, 1870s on where you had this, these Jim Crow laws, these laws that were, uh, sort of unspoken laws, like this is what you can and can't do, okay, as a black person. And, um, and if you crossed that line, you learned about it and you learned about it through seeing other people being lynched. Um, uh, Nina uh, Simone uh, uh, sung about strange fruit swinging from the tree. And this strange fruit was or were black bodies being hanged. And those, those moments were actually photographed from people photographed them and actually would, much like trading cards and postcards, would send postcards of black bodies swinging from a tree. So this is not new. It's not new. Uh, there are some people that think this is new, but this is not new. Uh, what is new is this worldwide conscientious, this thought about whoa, what's going on? This isn't right. What's going on? That's what I'm seeing that feels somewhat new. But I think that now people, I'm seeing people that I, I, I'm surprised to, to see in and saying, what's going on? What's, what's happening? This, this should not be happening, but it's been happening for a long time long time. It just so happens to be that uh, people, black people are tired of it. We're tired. And um, Black Lives Matter movement was started by three black women. 
three black women. And we, uh, and now uh, this was, it, this was, it was like, it's the perfect opportunity for people to be able to see the, the people who are screaming and saying, we are human. See our humanity. Don't kill us anymore. This has been happening here in Australia. But I'm here as, as a person who is in this colonizing space. And, and that in many ways that my, my job, the things and the, my, even Australia brought me over, right? Uh, in terms of my capital that I could give. And, and I'm looking at the things that are happening here and I gotta, I gotta wipe my eyes. Am I seeing the same thing? That's the thing that now we are coming together on. We have all experienced the sense of trauma from this, uh, from colonization, this trauma. I am of people who were stolen from one land and taken across the water. And for those that survived and weren't dumped, you know, uh, thrown into the ocean in chains, still in chains, because they felt that, oh, we couldn't feed, we can't feed, we won't survive, we can't, we got to get rid of some of this cargo. Well, those were my people. I don't know where I'm from, but I was, we were taken and brought to this other land to build that land. So we were capital. And here I'm now going and I've left that land and coming here to Australia and seeing that the story continues. The problem is continuing. And, um, and I just, it, it, we, and we can no longer, uh, Martin Luther King said, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. This matters. We can no longer be silent anymore about it. You, you talked about Jim Crow laws and um, so well, after slavery was so-called abolished, <laughs> and there was then the Jim Crow laws, and now it's sort of like this um, sort of massive prison industrial complex where now slavery or slavery 2.0, like slavery never left mm-hmm. the U.S. It's just in prisons now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so I guess like a lot of these um, – Especially if, like we looked at, look at the rally on Saturday where it was black deaths in custody. Um, so in police custody. And I guess there's a lot of parallels in, in, in the US. Did you, did you want to talk about that at all? I feel that in the US, black bodies were used to benefit, uh, this industry, whatever industry it was, cotton, tobacco what have you, building. Um, the um, bodies were being looted, okay? Our bodies are being used and looted, and now they're still being used and looted for industry's sake, okay? There are, there are people benefiting from this. Who, who benefits from 
labor that's given away for free or, or the, rather the bodies of, of these people who were quote free, but were not. And, and I think that, look, I, I'm, I have trouble talking about this because I'm angry. I am, I'm angry. I am the child of my mother's brother was shot and killed in the U.S. Uh, when two days after, two days after his son was born and he was walking from out of the hospital, walking across the street to go get things for his wife and his newborn, and he gets gunned down because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time in between a shootout between someone that was robbing a store and police, you know, and I'm seeing um, that there's this, so that this is personal for me and it, it's hard to, to structure a conversation around it because it just bleeds and you, you don't know where the blood is going to go. And I'm sad to see that our, our, my black brothers and sisters here in Australia mm-hmm. are experiencing the same inhumanity that, that my people in the States have experienced that anyone living in a, you know, in, in a system of this colonization that we were just talking about, it is hard to see people, industries benefiting from, from people being hurt, Mm. hurt and killed, harming others. How, How can you, how can we sit back and not talk about that? I'm here as a as a visitor. I'm on lands here that don't that are unseated and that we don't have necessarily all the answers, but we can certainly as allies listen. Shut up and listen. And don't tell people how they should be doing things. And so the comparison from U.S. and here, I don't think it's about comparing. It's just about knowing that Mm -hmm. this, we are all, we, we can no longer be silent. We all are experiencing that conflict at, at that narrative, you know, where this ain't right. This ain't right. It needs to be changed. And, and shoot, we're gonna, we're gonna be the ones that need to talk about it and, and to find a way. And the people who are involved and benefit from, from looting black bodies. And when I say looting, it's, you know, it's using them in, in silencing them in, I mean, you know, people are benefiting in the states from rounding up you know, people. And putting them in jails. So that was Dr. Denise Chapman, who uses poetry, old stories, children's literature, film, call and response, storying, and interactive digital content as windows and spaces for critical activism. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. 
You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. 3CR is your station in solidarity and struggle. We've been with you since 1976 and we are here to stay. Throughout June, we're running a station appeal. We need the financial support of our listeners to stay independent, community-owned and radical. Jump online and give what you can. Go to 3cr.org.au. So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. That was a huge show, um, as usual. When is it not? Um, so we heard the first segment of Frontier War Stories, hosted by Bo Spiram, and this podcast um, episode uh, featured an interview with Callum Clayton Dixon, we then heard uh, the, la- uh, the last segment, part three of the Think Tanger podcast about how the city of Tanger um, is undergoing social change and there's community building and fostering stronger solidarity networks beyond class boundaries through the Think Tanger network. Um, and after that, we heard uh, a broader conversation with Dr. Denise Chapman, who shared poems with us last week reflecting on Black Lives Matter and the murder of George Floyd. Thank you so much for joining in. Uh, and next up is Lost in Science, and we'll be back next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton, or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events. <laughs> 